0: This is Fresh Tracks Weekly. So this week we're going to talk about screwing over the non-resident hunter, how multiple states are adopting regulations that restrict numbers, restrict access, or raise prices for non-residents. But before that, here's some news that we found interesting this week. In Montana, Fish, Wildlife, and Parks recently sent out an email reminding hunters and anglers that they can purchase new licenses starting today, March 1st. In the same email, they also mentioned that if you purchase your general deer or elk license before June 30th, that you'll be entered to win a free moose, sheep, or goat license. Which at first thought, you might think, oh cool, free moose, sheep, or goat tag, but It's kind of a strange way to incentivize the purchase of licenses early. I think that's the goal is they want people to purchase these licenses early. So naturally, I went to Hunt Talk to see if I could figure out when this decision was made. And sure enough, some individuals on the forum remembered the discussion of this change during the last legislative session. However, there were some more pressing issues at the time. And so most advocates didn't really worry about it and focused on other things. Anyway, in the scheme of things, it's probably not that big of a deal, but it is an additional license that's added on top of existing draw licenses, super tags, and governor's tag. So while I do appreciate the fact that this tag is going to go to someone who's not just the highest bidder for the governor's tag, or someone who bought thousands of dollars worth of raffle tickets for the super tag, it just seems odd that it'll possibly end up in someone's hand who might not even want it. Also in Montana, the State Supreme Court sided with the Department of Environmental Quality and the Black Butte Project in regards to the controversial copper mine on the Smith River. The Smith River is an extremely popular river in central Montana known for its beauty, trout fishing, and remoteness. It's the only river in Montana that requires a permit to float and camp due to high demand. The proposed mine would divert 250 million gallons of water a year and extract 14 million tons of copper from the ground. There would be a significant amount of mine tailings as a byproduct, which is one of the main concerns of contamination of the river. Because of the risk to this highly valued resource, there's been several lawsuits against the mining company and Department of Environmental Quality who issued them the permit. It has been years of back and forth battles in courts, with lower courts ruling against the mining company and DEQ resulting in the permits being pulled. But in this recent Montana Supreme Court case, those permits have been reissued. While this puts the mine one step closer to operation, the Coalition of Conservation Groups that filed the lawsuits still have a separate filing that challenges the mine diverting the 250 million gallons of groundwater, saying it does not constitute a beneficial use under the Montana Water Use Act. So the battle rages on. There's another court date set for March 29th in Missoula. Former head of the National Rifle Association, Wayne LaPierre, was recently ordered to repay $4.4 million he had misspent of NRA money, along with retired finance chief Wilson Phillips being ordered to pay back $2 million. The NRA has been facing scrutiny over allegations of corruption and misspending funds for years. I was going to try to cover more of this story, but honestly, I just spent the last couple of hours trying to refresh myself and all the controversy that has gone on, and suffice to say, it's worthy of a Hollywood movie. There's whistleblowers and lawsuits and a Game of Thrones-esque nature to the power structure of the organization. Just some wild stuff. But anyway, it's just too much to wrap my head around right now. So, the news today is that Wayne LaPierre severed ties with the NRA and owes a bunch of money back to them. In Vermont, a bill has been read in several committee hearings that would change how the state's Fish and Wildlife Board would function, how members are appointed, along with changing certain coyote hunting regulations. As it reads, currently, S258 would transfer certain wildlife management authority to the Department of Fish and Wildlife instead of the Fish and Wildlife Board where it currently resides. So on the surface, this bill appears to be transferring power from the governor appointed commissioners to the department biologists, which in many cases would be a beneficial move for hunters. However, many hunters in Vermont are in strong opposition to this bill. The concern comes from the fact that animal welfare groups are pushing this legislation and they want to have a bigger seat at the table, along with adding that additional language related to coyote hunting and baiting. One committee member specifically mentioned how Washington's Fish and Wildlife Commission functions as an example of what to look to. Why that's interesting is because Washington has been in the spotlight recently for its commissioners being less sympathetic to hunters, along with trying to change their conservation policy similarly. I don't think a vote has occurred yet, but the Senate Natural Resources and Energy Committee did just amend the bill which initially aimed to ban the use of dogs for coyote hunting. That part has been stricken, and now it currently reads to only ban baiting for coyotes unless authorized via a certain trapping license but it still has all the language related to the commissioner appointments. Anyway, I wouldn't doubt that this bill will move forward now, so if you live in Vermont and want to have input on how it proceeds, you may want to contact the Committee on Natural Resources and Energy members, which a link is in the video description. In Iowa, a bill has been progressing and has already passed the Senate that would hamstring Iowa Department of Natural Resources' ability to acquire property. Senate File 2324 would change laws that would prohibit Iowa DNR from buying property at auctions, Along with prohibiting DNR from even acquiring land that a nonprofit purchased at an auction. Iowa DNR wildlife management areas provide a significant amount of public land hunting opportunity in the state, which is currently only 3% public land. Not only do these wildlife management areas provide public access, they also host some of the best wildlife habitat for multiple species and improve water and soil quality. Both Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever have been advocating to get this bill killed. It is currently in the hands of the House, which is rumored to also introduce a companion bill that is yet to be seen. So if you're an Iowa resident and you want the DNR to still be able to acquire land, you may want to contact your representatives. Quail Forever has provided links to contact the House legislators, which I'll put in the video description. In Oregon, a wildlife package bill has been introduced that would provide funding and expand various wildlife programs and address invasive species issues in the state. House Bill 4148 would address wildlife diseases, providing funding to several labs that respond to wildlife-related diseases such as avian flu and mosquito-borne illness. It would provide funding to work towards safe passage projects in the state such as highway crossing features. It would provide funding to combat invasive species within the state such as European green crabs, quagga mussels, and sudden oak death. It would also provide resources for various forms of education and outreach to increase awareness of wildlife issues in Oregon. Currently, this bill is still in committee, but if you live in Oregon and have input, you can contact the members of the Joint Committee on Ways and Means at the link in the video description. All right, with that, we are on to our deeper dive, where Randy and I are talking about how states allocate licenses and tags to residents versus non-residents. This week, we are talking about screwing over the public land traveling non-resident hunter.
1: Yeah, I just got back from Mountain Tough. I feel like I'm getting screwed over, man. I, <laughs> I can I I I look want to look like a bum because I didn't have time to take a shower when I got done. But oh, I hope I, I don't fall asleep, man.
0: I'm getting more out. That's good though. You have a a doll sheep a doll sheep hunt coming up this fall, oh, no. so it'll right. be uh, worthwhile. Hopefully, yeah. <laughs> anyhow,
1: we called yeah. it screwing over the non-resident, right? Yeah.
0: Basically, it, what prompted it is. Uh, Various states are changing their regulations f- for non resident hunters. Yep. Uh, usually to the detriment of the non resident. <laughs> yep. Less opportunity, higher prices, yep. whatever it is. And obviously, we are non resident hunters in various states in the western U.S. So, 49 uh, other states. Yeah. And Montana, our home state, is also one of those states that has been adopting oh. a few regulations that. That changed things we, for non resident hunters. The big yeah. one was a few years back now, but
1: yeah. we, we lay the pipe to non residents. I mean <laughs> look at the price disparity. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think uh I our resident elk tags are like twenty five dollars still compared to non resident, which is pushing uh, a thousand now. Thousand
1: and forty two dollars plus twenty cents plus a three percent transaction fee plus twenty five dollars of stamps.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I think uh, – uh, the uh, yeah, I'm sure you have a lot of thoughts on it. But yeah. the, I guess my big thing I, – I know that a lot of the audience might not love this, but I kind of understand it, and I mm-hmm. I don't really get too mad about it. It's, it's understandable, at least. I can get upset, and I can, you know, be like, man, that sure seems expensive. But at the end of the day, yeah. they – you know the state agencies who are making these rules and their commissions and ultimately the their the public citizens or the citizens of that particular state are coming up with these these rules and regulations and yeah.
1: and a lot of people say well how can they do that that's not fair right they they in, invoke all these rules and and why it shouldn't be and the most common one
0: we hear is well, that's public land Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, Uh, I get it because I mean, then the reason that bring that up is because on federal public land and a lot of state lands within various states depends, check your state regulations and rules, but you can go hunt on those as a non-resident. Like you can go out there and recreate or hunt or walk your dog. You can go to the Forest Service or the Bureau of Land Management or the Fish Wildlife Service in a lot of cases and just do whatever you want and not whatever you want but you know right largely you can go recreate and hunt on those lands Mm -hmm. if you have a state license to do so for the hunting portion anyway yep
1: and the premise is well i'm a u.s citizen so i'm a quasi owner of those state lands or federal lands i should have the same rights as an as a resident right that's the normal rationale and before I get into all the details of why, under our law and our constitution and our Supreme Court cases, that's an incorrect lens to view it through. Uh, really, you're making the premise that if you own land, you should be allocated the hunting opportunity. Right. So, in a state like Montana, where we're two-thirds private, do we want to give two-thirds of our elk tags, our sheep tags, our da 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 tags, and you got to go through a private landowner? I sure don't. No. So <laughs> I, I, the, when I usually throw that out there, they're like, well, it still isn't fair. Well, you know, what? I get that. Right. But we have a court case in 1842, United States Supreme Court case, Martin versus Waddell, that really set this whole thing in motion. That case, and I'm going to summarize here, but go read it if you want. It was an argument about. A private landowner saying, "Hey, you can't come and do the shell fishing out on the tide flats in front of my place," and the court said, "Wait a second. The wildlife is not a an attachment to your land. Right? It exists wherever it exists, and it's held in trust for the public benefit. The public. they, They then go on to talk about this public trust doctrine that says." Every citizen of a state is a beneficiary of the public trust held by that state. And I keep saying state because there's not a federal public trust. Right. So you and I living in Montana, we are beneficiaries of the wildlife public trust of Montana's wildlife. But we are not beneficiaries of Wyoming or Arizona or Nevada or wherever. Right. So any hunting opportunity Wyoming gives me, or Colorado gives me, is not by right. It's not by obligation. It's because they view me as a non-resident, or us collectively, non-residents, as a beneficial stakeholder to keep their trust
0: funded. Right. And that's what a lot of states have ended up doing, is charging the non-resident a large fee relative to the resident hunter, and that foot's the bill in a lot of these states that's the major funding source for a lot of these states is non-resident license and right. take sales and Montana and,
1: got sued over that oh i didn't in okay.
0: 1978 okay. jim
1: Getz, right down here uh, defended the Montana Department of Fish Wildlife and Parks it was called Montana Fishing Game at that time 1978 baldwin versus commissioner versus fish wildlife and parks commissioner baldwin said hey You're interfering with interstate commerce here and all these other protections under the Constitution by charging non-residents a a disparity. And it went all the way to the United States Supreme Court. And the United States Supreme Court said, hunting is not a right for a non-resident. It's a privilege. And therefore, it's not governed under a lot of these other rules. Get out of here. Montana can charge them whatever they want. (laughs) <laughs> and what happened after that? Every other state is like, non-residents get ready to fund our operation here. Right. But the the point of that is, I, I'm trying to let people know this isn't just made up. Yeah. Okay, there's a history to how we got to every one of these things that people are frustrated with.
0: Yeah, and I think a lot of the, a lot of people will now, even knowing all of that, mm-hmm. they say, "Well, how can you?" continue to do things to, you know, ruin non-resident hunting by increasing prices or whatever, or, or, or not even, I guess not the increasing prices part. Usually it's when you're restricting access in some way, for instance, right. Alaska, right. In Alaska, a lot of, a lot of places are becoming off limits to non-residents, whether right. that's by species, like as a non-resident, you can't hunt doll sheep without a registered guide. You can't hunt brown bear. You can't hunt uh, mountain goat, And then there's one other too, right? There's the the doll sheep, mountain goat and the big bears, big bears. Okay. But anyway, so then people will come in and say, well, that's, you know, they're not going to be able to fund their game agency if they continue to do this, which maybe so, but at the same time, it's like that state's decision Right. to figure out how they want to do that. And it might end up being the residents footing the bill if, that, if it comes to that. Mm-hmm. And I'm just, I am just I shouldn't use Alaska as an example. Other, there's other states that right. have similar examples. Look Liga- at Wyoming's Yeah, Wyoming. Got to
1: use a, a, an outfitter to hunt in a w- designated wilderness area, designated under the Wilderness Act of 1964. You and I as non-residents would have to hire an outfitter, or you can get a resident to accompany you. Right as quote-unquote a guide. But either way, it takes millions of acres
0: off the table for non-residents. Yeah. And they've been sued, and <laughs> they won. Gotcha. To me, again, though, it's like at the end of the day, if, if that's what the state wants to do, that's fine. But I think uh, as the state does that, they have to recognize that, you know, we might not have the luxury of $25 elk takes forever, Right. which I'm okay with. But, you know, not everybody's okay with that. As soon as you talk about raising the prices of— resident takes people get pretty fired up and it is every time that happens I do have to take a step back and like realize that there there are people who might just be skating by and just really love or count on having that deer elk take in their backyard and they might they they don't have the luxury of taking off a week to go hunt elk every year like I do and so that it's hard. It, it's hard to put yourself in other people's shoes. But anyway, mm-hmm. there's this. There's a lot to it, I guess. Yeah.
1: And I mean, there's a lot beyond that. Of I worry if we exclude non-residents and keep excluding and excluding, where does that leave us when we go to the person in Indiana and says, "Hey, we really need your help on this federal
0: land issue." Right. That what, is, and that's what, like the a, a really good point because if people tend to not care as much about something that they can't go out and enjoy right if you don't have a tangible connection to something right
1: you're gonna be busy that day yeah when a threat comes up or when a request to help fund an opportunity comes up and i know some people say well then you're really not a serious wildlife advocate or public land advocate i get that rationale but let's talk practicality excluding non-residents comes with some other consequences and I you know I don't uh, like the the reason that these uh, discussions sometimes frustrate me is because whether we fight about how that allocation occurs or what the price disparity is it doesn't put one more elk in the hills it doesn't put one more wild sheep on the mountain Right, it doesn't put one more duck in the air. <laughs> it's like, well, we're gonna resolve that we're just gonna fight over this, right? And we're gonna let the pie keep shrinking and you know, the the herds keep shrinking, and someday we'll just have to fight over who gets to kill the last elk. I,
0: I hope not, but I, no. I I see. Yeah, we've talked about this quite a bit recently, just how it's it's a lot of the things we argue about and concern ourselves as hunters or concern ourselves about with hunters is just it's social problems right less biological more social but it's important i think also to take into account things that affect us as hunters i mean like Mm -hmm. it the hunting experience also is gonna drive a lot of support like if you continue to have a horrible experience as a public land hunter you're again also not going to want to support a lot of things so a lot of the things we concern ourselves with in that social aspect are private versus public land hunting scenarios where one regulation might put more animals on private land, for instance, and right. so then it's just like, well, that we want to argue about because, and even though it's again, it's probably not going to be, affect anything biologically. If people are continually not having any success hunting or having a miserable time when they're doing it, then they're also not going to be an advocate for the cause. So, yeah. Yeah, it's it's a complicated issue, but yeah, um, I, I it is. I, yeah, I feel like we need a con- <laughs> it's fun or not fun. I feel like it's important to convince people to advocate for those biological things. Right. Uh, in addition to the social things. And very often we focus a lot on the social things. And as a non-resident who likes to hunt Colorado,
1: I fully expect that the, the opportunity there in my lifetime is going to shrink. Well, it just did two reasons. Yeah, it just did right for two reasons. One, Colorado's growing like crazy. Idaho's growing like crazy, as is Nevada, New Mexico, Arizona, all these Western states where people like to hunt. The resident population is going like this. Yeah. And you combine that with the fact that across the West, in my adult life, this is the first time herds for the last 8 to 10, sometimes even 20 years, if you talk meal deer, are going this way. So, you have popula- resident population going this way. You have herds going that way. Yeah. What, what what alternative exists on a state-based system for you, the beneficiary of that state, to get your opportunity, which is way more priority than me getting that opportunity?
0: Yeah.
1: yeah. Non- and I,
0: again, I, I said this at the beginning, but I I kind of understand it. Like, I remember at the time when the non-resident fee increase went, you know, went through. I was a proponent of it. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I probably would have thought a lot harder about it now, but at the time I was like, yeah, I, they should pay the bill. Yeah. Like, go ahead. That's, that's fine. And like, and part of me, I, and I don't know, I have to think a lot more critically on a case by case basis now when something like that goes through. But, uh, I, I understand why States make it more difficult and restrict access to non-residents i do understand it they, they, but like you said i mean it's a balancing act because if you lose those advocates but at the same time like we have a lot of resident hunters that e- we have more people moving to montana and if we have more resident hunters then we can you know hopefully count them as advocates as well but it's just like they're going to continue to take priority as the that right. state's beneficiary the right. prim- primary beneficiary those residents are going to take priority. Right. And let's use North Dakota, for
1: example. They give away more moose tags than we do in Montana. Really? Yeah. Okay. You know how many non-resident moose tags they give out? Zero. Zero. They, their trustees have said, you know what? This valuable scarce resource is for our residents only. They are the beneficiaries of our public trust. Yeah. You ever try to draw an elk tag in South Dakota? No. You're going to have to move there if you want to draw one. Why? Same theory. Yeah. It is a state-based system where the trustees, first and foremost, have to look out for the beneficiaries. Anyone who's not a beneficiary, i.e., I as a non-resident in all the other Western states, I'm merely a stakeholder. Right. And as a stakeholder, that doesn't come with rights like being a beneficiary does. It comes with, I better be willing to pay my way or contribute something positive to the trust so that the trustees have no choice but to deal with me and think of me
0: as an asset to what they're trying to do. Yeah. So what do you think is, I mean, do you think there's a good balance there? Like in terms of balancing resident versus non-resident opportunity, do you tend to like, is there any states as an example that you think have it figured out or tend to lean and... i
1: I think across the section of, of all the states, most states have settled on this 9010 kind of allocation like New Mexico is six percent to the non-guided non-residents mm-hmm. uh, Oregon is two to five percent. The Dakotas depending on the species zero percent. Colorado can be 25% depending on the species. Wyoming can be in the 30% depending on the species. So I think it depends on how much of the resource exists in each state, how rare is that species. You know, I, I, I don't think that it's unreasonable to have a 90-10 split in pretty much every state. In mm-hmm. Montana, we don't have a 90-10 split. We have a statutory... Requirement that we have to issue seventeen thousand elk tags in this state.
0: You to not, non-resident
1: to non-residents. If there were two elk left in this state right now, under current statute, we're selling seventeen thousand
0: non-resident elk tags. Yeah, that's, so that's wild. Do you and well, and then there was also I remember last year there was, but there's also like a substantial amount of more tags that end up in non-resident hands mm-hmm. through various means. Right. Uh, a lot of cow elk tags and yeah. and whatnot, but yeah. the, the, the um, bigger
1: point is also on the, the funding mechanism. Okay. Right. Uh, here's, here's one thing I hear all the time and, and it's a legitimate complaint. I pay 25 bucks for my Montana elk tag. My brother's going to pay a thousand and by the time it's all done, he's going to pay 40 to 45 times that just in add-ons and everything else. That's a pretty weird disparity to me.
0: Yeah. But there's no shortage of demand. Exactly. That's the thing. I mean, uh, it's, that's, I don't know. That's another one I struggle with though. Kind of like, right. I, I love the idea of having a democracy of hunting where right. basically anybody can afford to do it, you know, regardless of your means. If you, if you just, if you're an employed individual, you should be able to go hunting in your own state. Right, which is the I think largely the case in Montana and a lot of states, but how do you, how do you factor in the democracy of hunting for a non-resident? Like, right. not everybody, you know, in the scheme of things, very few right people can travel outside of their home state. Yeah, and hunt as a non-resident. When you look at the big picture, yeah.
1: so so here's one thing I would caution non-residents who say: I pay twenty, thirty, forty times more than you. In 1991, when Kim and I moved to Bozeman, Montana, we took $25,000 pay cuts. That's how bad we wanted that resident elk and deer tag every year. Yeah. I was in the legislature one time up there in Helena, and some smart aleck legislators like, I can't believe you get this worked up over a $12 elk tag, which is what they were at the time, I think. I'm like, sir, for me, that's a $25,000 elk tag. And so... None of that solves these bigger issues, but hopefully it gives some perspective to it. And my point is, it's not like people in states said, we just want to do this, and we're doing it willy-nilly. We're breaking laws, or we're violating the Constitution. No, I could ramble off way more court cases along the way from 1842 to recent. Like 2005, Arizona got sued over the same thing. And guess what? Congress passed the law. Said, here, states, you get to do whatever you want. So all of this happened through a series of events. It's been substantiated and supported by a series of laws and court cases. And this is where we find ourselves. The one thing that solves an awful lot of these issues is larger herds. More elk on the mountain, more sheep on the hills, more ducks in the air, more fish in the water. Yeah. You know, what's the old saying that uh, winning solves a lot of problems? (laughs) (laughs) That's true. Larger herds, more abundant wildlife. Yeah. More access solves a lot of these problems.
0: That being said, I agree. I think that's, like, obviously what we should strive for the most. But do you have any cautionary tales, like, of either going too far with restricting like do you think there's like a cautionary tale to be told of going too far or not far enough maybe i don't know or do you think that where we're at in the western states is where a lot of them are just going to land in that 90 10 and that's that's okay
1: yeah i I think they're going to land wherever their resident beneficiaries demand okay and that's how it should be really you know if colorado says look we're at seventy-five twenty-five. We went from 65-35, now we're 75-25. And their population keeps growing. And their elk numbers drop or whatever, deer numbers drop. They're going to have to go to 80-20, And they're going to have to do that with mm-hmm. their beneficiaries, their citizens as the primary concern. And then we get into this thing about, well, we need this to be funded and all you non-residents, we look at you guys not through this lens of democracy. We look at you through state as stakeholders who you're willing to pay a lot. And now we're, we know we're shrinking your opportunity to keep the same amount of funding. We're just going to have to charge you more. Look what Wyoming just did. Yeah. An, yeah. an elk tag in the special draw is over $2,000 with all your fees.
0: Right. And what do you think the other states yes. are
1: looking around looking I wonder how that's going to work out for
0: Wyoming. It'll be really interesting to see how many people went into that. Because, I mean, they ha- they still had the regular draw, So you could still apply for an uptake right. for seven, high 700s, right. somewhere but, in there. But, yeah, yeah, it'll be interesting to see.
1: Yeah, and so my, my point of that is we as non-residents, and people don't think of us as non-residents because we live in a western state. Mm-hmm. But I absolutely love to hunt Nevada. Right. I went to college there. I lived there for six years. It's one of my favorite places. But I'm a non-resident there. And I'm not going to go down to Nevada and say, hey, I'm a non-resident. You guys need to be listening to me. They charged me $1,200 for an elk tag. They charged me a non-resident license. And I, I, re- I either don't want to hunt there that bad or I do and I pay the fee. Mm-hmm. And I know that sounds really cut and dried and like, well, easy for you to say, Newberg, But that's really how it is in a state where you're a non-resident. Yeah, You don't have the rights that come with being a
0: beneficiary. You're merely a
1: transactional stakeholder.
0: Yeah, but I do like what you said earlier, though, about putting more animals on the landscape. I feel like that's what we should end the podcast on, is that's the best way to solve the issues, is to get more animals on the landscape. So those are the things we want to advocate for. I'm on board with that. (laughs) All right. Thanks, Marcus. Well, thank you.